the story is a it's a survival story. It's a rescue story. It's about love and hope and resilience and a fractured family trying to come back together. All the tense, intense stuff, which yes, is there. I'm 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 not trying to say that it's oh, not yeah, there. It's it there. is, you know, it's, it's there. <laughs> it's there. But that that really is, you know, I had somebody describe it as the spectacle being a Trojan horse for a deeply emotional story. That's good. I love that. I know. I I and and I and I I'm so grateful to hear to hear you say that at the top because you know it's 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 something that I'm really trying to get people to understand. It's like, yeah, it's intense, but it's really a deeply emotional story at heart. Welcome to the Friends and Fiction Writers Block Podcast. Four New York Times bestselling authors, one rock star librarian, and endless stories. Join Mary Kay Andrews, Kristen Harmel, Christy Woodson Harvey, and Patty Callahan Henry, along with Ron Block. As novelists, we are four longtime friends with 70 books between us. And I am Ron Block. Please join us for fascinating author interviews and insider talk about publishing and writing. If you love books and are curious about the writing world, you are in the right place. Welcome to this week's episode of the Friends and Fiction Writer's Block Podcast. If you love a pulse-pounding, edge-of-your-seat thriller that doubles as a captivating glimpse at humanity, this is the episode for you. Literally, buckle up, because T.J. Newman joins us to talk about her just-released book, Drowning. With that title, what could possibly go wrong? I am Ron Block. And I am Kristen Harmel. T.J. Newman is a former bookseller and flight attendant whose first novel, Falling, became a publishing sensation and debuted at number two on the New York Times bestseller list. The book was named Best Book of the Year by USA Today, Esquire, and Amazon, among many others, and has been published in more than 30 countries. The book will soon be a major motion picture from Universal Pictures. T.J. lives in Phoenix, Arizona, Drowning is her second novel, and it has gotten universal praise, including starred reviews from Library Journal and the elusive Kirkus Reviews, who called it taut, gripping, a spectacular aviation thriller that readers will be relieved to know is fiction. Welcome to the podcast, TJ. Okay, could you guys just follow me around all the time? (laughs) (laughs) I feel like I could like run through a wall after that. Like you guys, thank you. That was, <laughs> I mean, thank you so much for that and for having me on. I'm, I'm so pleased to be here with you guys. It's it's so wonderful to have you here. I mean, we just both, we were texting each other about like, did you get to this part yet? Did you get to this part yet? <laughs> it's just, it's it's excellent. Okay. But for the podcast, can you start by giving us the elevator pitch for Drowning? And then, because I know the book is about so much more than just the plane crash and rescue that is teased on the cover, can you tell us what the book is really about? I love that, Ron. Thank you. Yes. Drowning tells the story of the rescue of Flight 1421, a flight from Honolulu to San Francisco that crashes into the ocean six minutes after takeoff. And the passengers immediately evacuate until an explosion forces those who didn't get out in time to close the doors. 
it's too late, playing floods and sinks with 12 people trapped inside, including a father and his 11-year-old daughter. Now, their only chance at survival lies with an elite rescue team on the surface led by her mother and his soon-to-be ex-wife. And, you know, as you, as you alluded to, that's the setup, right? That's, that's the setup for the story, but that's not really what the story is. The story is a, it's a survival story. It's a rescue story. It's about love and hope and resilience and a fractured family trying to come back together. All the Tense, intense stuff, which yes, is there. I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to say that it's oh, not yeah, there. It's it is, there. you know, it's, it's there. <laughs> it's there. But that, that really is. You know, I had somebody describe it as the spectacle being a Trojan horse for a deeply emotional story. Ooh, that's good. Love that. I know. I, I, and and I, and I, I'm so grateful to hear hear you say that at the top because you know it's 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 something that I'm really trying to get people to understand it's like yeah it's intense but it's really a deeply emotional story at heart yeah absolutely it's like come for the action stay for the heartache and the and the lessons and the family dynamics and it is it is truly one of those novels that you just cannot put down. I mean, I read it in a single sitting. It was a long yep. sitting, but it was a single sitting because I, I couldn't make myself get up and walk away from it. So it was just fantastic. So TJ, Falling, your debut, which we just talked about a little bit, was such a huge smash hit. And it's often hard to follow a success like that. But somehow you managed to do the nearly impossible. So you delivered a sophomore novel that hits all of the same emotional and action-packed beats of your debut, but that somehow at the same time also feels wholly original and wholly different. Can you talk to us a little bit about where the idea behind this second novel came from? Yeah, absolutely. When I was, you know, trying to figure out what my what my follow-up was going to be, the only thing I knew for sure was that it it was going to have to be bigger in every single regard, you know, action-wise, tension-wise, emotion-wise, character-wise, it was just going to have to be bigger. And so I started going back to, you know, what were other ideas that I had? Because I was a flight attendant for 10 years. And, you know, I tell the story all the time of how I came up with the idea for falling on a plane. Well, I worked a lot of red eyes over 10 years, and that was not the only idea that I had. And I was working another red eye, a different time, um, this time coming back from Hawaii to LA. And I was standing in the forward galley, looking out the, um, the, the small porthole window in the door, you know, and it's middle of the night. And I'm looking out that window at just nothing, right? Like a pitch black, Mm void. There's no city lights. There's no civilization. There is nothing out there but water for hours and miles. And it just hit me, right? Like how isolated you are. And so my brain, as it does, immediately starts going to what happens right now if something goes wrong? If we do go down, who's going to save us? How are we going to save ourselves? What can we actually do? What is this going to look like? And it just, it just kept going from there. And so that's the moment that I went back to, um, 
when I started writing this book and just went from there and basically said, okay, if I'm going big, if I know I'm going big, let's, let's think like a child does, right? Like let's take off all logic, all reason, all anything. What is absolute worst case scenario? And I landed on a plane with people trapped inside at the bottom of the ocean, hanging off this edge of a cliff. And then I said, okay, let's figure out if we can make this, make this real. And, and so I reverse engineered it and figured out a way to do it. I even have goosebumps thinking about I it know. now. I mean, I know even just hearing you say it again, I'm like, ah, I know what happens. <laughs> so I know that it took a ton of research it must have to do this, to get it right. Cause there's pieces of this book specifically as it pertained to the underwater rescue scenes that you had to research from scratch. How did you go about giving this book its factual backbone? Yeah, there was, obviously I was a flight attendant for 10 years and I have a lot of, you know, contacts and consults and aviation that I work with. I have, I, I call them my phone pilot friends and that's how I figured out, you know, how to make a situation where, you know, a plane would ditch, ditch being a aviation term for a crash landing on water. It's called a ditching. So I worked with pilots to figure out how to make that happen. And then after that, I had to go to, you know, engineers and I had to talk to, you know, research professors and I had to, I got scuba certified because I knew that realistically there was no way I was going to be able to describe what that is like if I hadn't done it myself. And it was, it was a huge help because it's, it's a different world. It's like, it's like being on the moon. Are either of you scuba certified or have you ever scuba? Nope. No, thank you. (laughs) I'm too chicken. Yeah. (laughs) But it's, you know, I hadn't either before this and it's, you know, there's, there's a scene in the book. I look back and there's a scene in the book where I'm one of the rescue divers is going down and he's describing his first dive when he was, when he was a kid, the first time that he went, you know, for a scuba dive. And that was my experience. You know, that was my experience that, that I had when I went scuba diving for the first time myself. So, you know, obviously there's parts of the story that, um, can't be authentically experienced. I can't actually put a plane underwater with, you know, but (laughs) I can put myself underwater. So as much as I could put myself into those situations, I, I did. That's awesome. And I, I've, I'm very claustrophobic. So the thought of putting that scuba mask on is like uh, terrifying. So you got me real good in the book here. Let me, I'll tell you that too. I want to follow that up because what, as I was reading the book, some of the scenes that take place on the plane, you really are just so adept at describing the positions of the people and where the things on the plane are, which obviously you couldn't have experienced yourself. So how did you set those up? How did you, how did you stage those? I mean, I flew for 10 years. So I, that was my home away from home. That was actually probably more accurately my home. I spent probably more time on a plane than I did in my own home. So I know that space backwards. And it's funny because as I was writing this, anytime I would take a flight, I would sit there and I would look around at the plane and I would like visualize a water line and I would visualize like, okay, if the water came up to here, all of that is underwater, that would still be exposed. This would be, it was a constant game of trying to visualize what it Mm. would look like with something that I already knew, 
but I had to think like, okay, I know that the emergency equipment for this is in that overhead bin, aircraft left, you know, it's there, but dang, if that was underwater, it would actually look like this and I wouldn't be able to access it. So it was constantly just taking what I already knew and just drowning it, uh, for lack of a better term. Um, and you know, to do this, I actually spent, this is, this is so silly, but I spent a ton of time in the bathtub as I was writing this and I have a, yeah, I have a, um, like a scale model airplane of an A321, which is the plane in the book. And I would take this toy basically into the bathtub and I would pretend I was crashing it, pretend it was on the surface of the ocean, pretend it was sinking and just like see what that looked like. Like if the tail is up here, how deep is it under in that way? You know what I mean? Like I would look at the angles and visualize it like that because I'm a visual person. It's how I learn. It's how I tell stories. I'm a very visual person. So I had to have that sort of visual component um, when trying to come up with, with, how this would actually look in practical terms. Oh, I, I love knowing that. That's yeah, fascinating. That is really, <laughs> my, like, yeah. My 10-year-old self is kind of going, oh, that would be fun. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. It really was. And I also, there's another scene in the book where Bill, not Bill, Will, sorry, Bill is the protagonist of my first book, Falling, which I only <laughs> realized, by the way, that it was Bill and Will. I only realized that after the fact. But anyway. Um, <laughs> it's really funny. <laughs> I know, I know. I, I totally slipped my mind. But he, he's describing sort of to the passengers, because he's an engineer, and he's he's sort of describing to them like how the air bubble works in the plane and how it's this and how it's that. And he uses a visual aid where he takes a water bottle and he empties out some of the water and he turns it on his side. Like a water bottle on its side, if you think about it, is like the fuselage of a plane. It looks like a plane full of water. And then you can see where the air bubble shifts when you lean it and, and this type of thing. That came about because that's what I did in the bathtub. I took a water bottle into the bathtub and I would fill it up with water and I would see like, where does the center of gravity go? If it tips this way, how much would it take for this? And just to see what that visual would look like, I did like, you know, little experiments with a water bottle in the bathtub. Wow. Oh my gosh. That's, you know, it's interesting because having read the book, I'm, I'm understanding so much more about Mm -hmm. it, hearing you talk about that, that, that is so interesting, but you you have this way of describing things where we really can visualize exactly how that air bubble moves or exactly how the water shifts. And it's just interesting to hear how you got to that place. But in addition to feeling like you did such a great job with this setting, one of the things I really love about this book too is that the emotional stakes are not just about what takes place on the plane. It's not just about whether they live or they die, right? There's a whole backstory involving our main characters, Will and Chris, and the loss of their daughter, Annie, before the action of the novel starts. Can you talk a little bit about the decision to include this in their backstory? How did it help you to raise the emotional stakes in the novel, not just for Will and Chris, but also for their remaining daughter, Shannon? Yeah, thank you for that. It it had to be about more than just that moment, right? It it because that's that's our lives, right? Like yeah. both of my books, I, I'm discovering that this is sort of what I love to tell are stories about ordinary people in extraordinary circumstances. Mm-hmm. Any of us could have been any of those passengers on the plane experiencing that. And as we know, it's like, yeah, 
it's about, you know, this big spectacle, this plane crash, this everything. And yes, it's life or death. It's right there. But life or death for any of us, what does that life mean? There's a whole backstory to each of us. So it's not just, you know, whoa, there's a plane underwater with people. It's, well, what about those people in there? What is at stake for them? What does their grief and their heartache, what are their regrets? What are their triumphs? Because that's what you are wrestling with when you come into an extraordinary situation, right? It's not just, you know, oh, this is on fire and this is big. It's, it's, you know, people talk about it as they're, they're facing their mortality, as, as their life flashes before their eyes. It's, yeah. That's what it's all about, is our backstories, is our personal experiences, our griefs, our loss, our regrets, our successes, and our loves. And, and that had to be the central focus and the beating heart of the story, because nobody wants to read 300 pages of just explosions and, and, and chaos, there has to be a deeply rooted emotional center. So I knew that that's what it had to be. Well, it just makes the stakes so much higher. And, you know, I'm glad you said that because I, I think it's not just the deeply rooted emotional center as it pertains to Will and to Chris and to Shannon, right? I mean, those are the characters we're with the most, but you also have this realistic, compelling cast of other characters too. And you show us really quickly, but really efficiently who the main characters are. And you get us rooting for them very quickly, even though you're juggling really what is a a very large cast of people. I I mean, you know, we come to really care, I think, about all of these characters. And without any spoilers, I sobbed several times over the course of the book over relatively minor characters. And I was sitting by a pool reading it. It was like crying my eyes out at the pool. So thank you very much for making me look like a weirdo. But um, (laughs) you, you you truly paint these characters so vividly and make us feel so much for them. Can you talk a little bit about how you go about creating these compelling characters who are not the main characters, who we don't have time to go into a huge backstory for, but who we come to really be rooting for regardless. You know, it's twofold, right? I think it's twofold. On the one hand, I got notes a lot of the time. That was, I remember getting this note for the first time and I was like, God, that's such a helpful note, which was that the note was you're treating this character like they're the lead character. Which on the one hand is like, well, I can't have that because they are just a smaller peripheral character. So I've got to figure out how to edit that out and, you know, pare that down. But at the same time, there's a lesson in that, in that every character is a main character in somebody's story. Yes. In their own story, they're the main character. So even your peripheral characters, they have to have that rich life. It may not be the focal point of the story that you're telling. And therefore, you do have to figure out how to pare that back and get that out of there because it's just going to muddy the water. But the story does exist. And if you don't know what that person's, what that character's story is when they're, you know, the lead character in their own life, then the character is going to fall flat. It's going to feel hollow and it's going to just feel like, you know, a stock, you know, walk on character. And the other part of that, I think is that, you know, from my time as a flight attendant, I think this is also why both of my books also, and I love these stories are big, big cast of characters, lots of, lots of people. It's not just focused on a couple, you know, protagonists. It's, 
it's, I think, a little bit of a byproduct from 10 years on the plane where, and I've described flight attending as being a professional people watcher, like (laughs) you're surrounded by a cast of characters every single flight. And sometimes you fly, you know, three, four legs a day. So you've got 400, 500 people that you are interacting with every single day. And each of them may have, you know, one second of an impact on you and other people you may have an entire conversation with, but they all have their own backstories. And I think that spending 10 years just with that much exposure to humanity every single day, it trained my brain to go, I had five seconds with you, but I'm now creating an entire backstory about you because of that one way that you moved your hand when she (laughs) stepped over to the side. You know what I mean? Like my brain has been conditioned to try to figure out people. Actually, that's really interesting. I've never thought about that before from the standpoint of as a flight attendant, you're also trained to assess people, right? We're constantly trying to figure out, is this person acting in a way that's suspicious? Do I need to be concerned about this? Or does this person, are they acting like they may be sick? Is there something going on that is going to be a medical emergency once we're up in the air? Or, you know, whatever it is, you're constantly trying to assess people to understand what their set of circumstances is. I have never put two and two together like that. <laughs> That's what we're here for. Interesting. <laughs> <laughs> I love that you're saying that though, too, is it Kristen's question and your follow-up it, it's reading the book, a simple gesture or a yeah. comment told me so much about these characters. Like I didn't need to have a whole big backstory. I yeah. could tell so much from those simple things. Thank you. Yeah, Thank you. And so that was, that, that took a lot of effort to, to pare it down to just, you know, the one or two things that would get that across. So thank you. That, that is um, wonderful to hear. Yes. I'd love to spoil it for everybody and tell them about them, but I won't do that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I'd like to dig in a little bit more about how you structured the novel. So as a reader, we, we can feel the tension build and getting to know the characters and the emotion, everything building up. How did you put that all together? How did you create it? And uh, at the end of it, I want you to also tell us how you were feeling as you were writing it, because I can't imagine that you didn't have a full emotional investment in this. I wish I should have done a tally of the number of boxes of tissues that I went through. I bet. I have to say, when people say like, oh, I cried, there's a part of me that's like, yes, I'm not alone. Cause it's like, I sobbed pretty much the whole time that I wrote this book. So that's, um, that's helpful to, to hear, you know, it's, it's, it was a juggling act. It was a real juggling act with this and sort of, you know, what I alluded to before is like, how do you, how do you get this set up? How do you make something this big? How do you set the stakes, but not fatigue the reader with constant mm. nonstop you know, explosion. So it's, it's sort of like music, right? You can't have just nonstop pounding, you know, music songs ebb and flow. They have crescendos and decrescendos and, and trying to find the music in the overall story. So I knew that I had to set up the story, you know, with this big, massive spectacle. And the way that I kind of, the model that I sort of looked at that was an inspiration for me was the opening of Saving Private Ryan which is in that oh. the first 20 minutes of that movie is, you know, Normandy. It's storming the beaches at Normandy. Yes. And it is non 
stop for 20 minutes and it is yeah. just you you learn nothing you 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 see tom tom hanks for you know a second you know but no you don't know names you don't know anything it is just you are dropped into total chaos and for 20 minutes straight and so i started the book saying you know the i mean the first line of the book is is our our main character opening his eyes in time to see the engine explode on the wing and so from there, it's like, okay, tone set from the first sentence. And now for the next several chapters, we're just going to, I'm going to, I'm going to put you through the ringer. We're going to, we're going to crash this plane. We're going to have it on the water. We're going to sink it. And I'm going to do it all up front and it's going to be nonstop. And I'm not going to let you go. I'm going to get you in a vice grip and I'm not going to let you go, but then I'm going to let you breathe. And so then immediately following all that, once we get the setup, then we go to a chapter that's at you know, one of the protagonist's house and she's doing a, a home improvement project and it's, it's pastoral, the sun's raising and we're outside, you know, it's fresh air. And so giving the reader that chance to breathe and then just figuring out for the rest of the book, how to keep that undulating tension and release going. (laughs) It's, it's just done very well because I I think that you're weaving those two strands of action and characterization together perfectly. Like just when you get to the point where we're like, ah, what happens next? You give us a different way to raise the stakes by making us care more about the characters. Yeah. It's uh, it, it, that I, I didn't really think that much about the pacing Ron, until you mentioned it, but just the structure in, in that way, I think was uh, very well done and very cinematic, which leads perfectly to this next question, which is speaking of Steven Spielberg, there was a great article about you and the bidding war for the film rights to drowning in variety recently. So it sounds like everyone from Steven Spielberg, and I'm sorry, I get ahead of my own self in my head. You mentioned Saving Private Ryan, which made me think of Steven Spielberg. You didn't actually say the word Spielberg, I think. I'm saying it. Uh, But it sounds like everyone from Nicole Kidman to Steven Spielberg wanted to grab the rights and that you had seven-figure offers from Apple, Paramount, Universal, Warner Brothers, and many more. So can you talk to us a bit about how that all went down and what it was like being in the center of this incredible bidding war? I mean, that's the stuff that writers dream of. It was insane. I mean, even looking back on it now, I, <laughs> I, I truly cannot believe that week happened and the way that it happened. Like it was, it was about six days straight of, I didn't leave my house. I didn't go anywhere. I didn't do anything because it was non-stop. There was, there was, it was non-stop calls and emails and just waiting also and trying to figure out, you know, what being on deck, you know, and, and that really kicked into high gear when, you know, my agent, called me one day and it's sort of been like, you know, he was on the phone nonstop 24 hours a day for this entire thing. And he fielded most of the calls, but he would call me and give me like a 30 second update, you know, and I would be on the phone with him and he'd be, you know, he'd say something like, you know, Oh, by the way, uh, Steven Spielberg has a book and he's reading it right now. I'm going to have a conversation with him tomorrow. I got to go. That's somebody else. And he'd hang up and I'd be standing there like, did he just say Steven yeah. Spielberg? What? <laughs> I'm sorry, is there two Steven Spielbergs? Because surely he's talking about the one that lives in like Omaha. That's like, you know, just, it can't be Steven Spielberg. Like you know, this, this guy who is, I mean, you know, exactly. Saving Private Ryan, you know, Jurassic Park. Like yeah. this is the person who's been like a creative you know, inspiration my entire life. And you're telling yeah. me that he is now reading something that I 
real. I mean, I don't know how to process that information. Yeah. I don't, I don't know what to do. And so it was, it was crazy. And that's how the entire week went. And then, you know, my agent had said, he was like, now we're probably going to be on some zoom calls pretty soon. So just sort of be ready, you know, but I'll let you know. And I was like, okay, yeah, sure. He calls back shortly thereafter. And he's like, I think there's a pretty good chance in about 15 minutes, we're going to be on a call with Nicole Kidman. So get ready. <laughs> and, just, <laughs> and I'm like standing there and I'm like, and it's, it's so funny, Chris. I feel like you'll, you'll understand this. The first thought that came to my mind, I've got 15 minutes to get ready for a call with Nicole Kidman, apparently. And the first yeah. thought that comes to my mind is I got to wash my hair. <laughs> I would have done the same. <laughs> right. It's totally illogical, totally irrational. I'm not going to wash my hair. Get ready. Of course not. But like my head is like, I, I can't meet the Nicole Kidman with dirty hair. I can't, I can't, I can't do that. You know, it's like, but that's, that I was reduced to absolute irrational thinking. Cause it was just, it was, it was crazy. And it was, it was, it was so neat to be in so many conversations with creative powerhouses who are all saying, you know, like, Hey, this story you made, like, this is how we would tell it. And it was so humbling to see just such creative, you know, ideas to something like a story that I know intimately and that I figured out for me, the best way to tell it, the best way that I could tell it was like this. And then to have somebody else come in and say, it's great, but have you thought of this? And to go, no, I hadn't. That's actually really, (laughs) that's really great. You know, I love that. So it was, it was, it was a week of just surreal moments and really humbling, inspiring conversations about just how to, tell a story well it was it was it was surreal what an incredible experience (laughs) but you know i i know this wasn't your first time through this kind of hollywood circus because your first book um i think attracted some big bids and a bidding war and all of that too and if i'm not mistaken are you writing the script for your first novel the screenplay based on your first novel I am. I'm adapting mm. Falling. Yeah, Universal is uh, is doing Falling, and I'm writing the screenplay for it. And that is oof, just an incredible experience, an incredible learning experience, an incredible. I'm having. I'm. I've been having a blast doing that because it's just. And and I've got to say, it's totally changed the way that I look at writing novels really studying and and practicing screenwriting because it is screenwriting is a world unto itself. It is so difficult. You know, in a novel, you have 10 pages to tell a scene in a screenplay, you have one, but you have to get the same amount of information and the same amount of story. You have to get that all across, but you only have one page to do it. And not only that, you don't have the, the luxury of telling someone what a character is thinking. It's all, you know, um, to be, you know, unfortunately as obvious as I can, it's a moving picture. So the, you know what I mean? Like that's how the story is told. You only know what you see. So how do you translate that from 10 pages to one onto a page, which will then be translated by a director onto the screen? It is an an experience. Yeah. And it's, it's totally changed the way I write novels in that you have to be ruthless with the story. You don't have, you have to know exactly what it is 
that your characters are trying to do in that moment. And you have to cut everything else away. So it really does give you a laser focus into, okay, what is the story? What is the story? Because you don't have time for anything superfluous. That's what, what an incredible experience and a learning experience that must have been. That's great. It had to be, had to be. Well, with all that Hollywood attention and experience, that's one level of this. But also, just like with Falling, you earned some tremendous words of praise for both that book and and this one. Don Winslow calling it stunning, emotional, and unforgettable. Adding that it reads like Apollo 13 underwater. And James Patterson said, Drowning is the first terrific thriller of 2023. Honest, it has at least a dozen legit cliffhangers and a dozen huggable characters you can't stop rooting for. T.J. Newman has the goods. Make that the greats. This is some pretty high praise indeed. How does it feel hearing all of that and getting all of that accolade? It's, I mean, these are writers that, you know, I've been inspired by and, and have learned from my whole life. And to have them say, you know, to tip their hat is just... It's unbelievable. It is truly unbelievable. And, and, you know, I don't know. I, it feels like the film deal. It's just all surreal. I just truly don't, I don't know how to compute it sometimes. I really, I really don't. And it's, it's, it's what I hold on to when it's, you know, I'm sure you know this, Kristen, when it's late at night and early in the morning and the characters aren't acting right and, everything is, you know, not going well, which is how, you know, it, it, most of the writing process is it's, you know, I try to remember not just on one or James Patterson, but you know, the readers who have been so yes. kind and generous and have embraced it. And, and I'm just, I'm so grateful for, for all of the response. Well, it's wonderful to read too. It's it's so nice when when you see a book that you love get all of this attention from some heavy hitters. So speaking of careers and all of that, we let it slip in your bio that you were a former bookseller. Can you tell us about your early connection to books? And did you always hope to be a writer? I did. I've I've read I'm a voracious reader and I've read and wrote my entire life long. I actually pursued theater first though. I got a degree in musical theater and then I moved to New York and, you know, gave, gave it my all trying to be a um, Broadway star and seeing as we're not talking about, you know, my next uh, big show, you can assume how (laughs) that went. It was a lot of failure. Um, I got nowhere and, you know, I bought a one-way ticket back to Phoenix and moved back in with my parents and was doing the whole, you know, mid-20s, what do I do with my life? I have a degree in musical theater, and musical theater community just told me I'm not good enough. What do I do now? Um, and I started getting odd jobs everywhere, just trying to figure out, you know, what I should do with my life. And none of it was working. None of it was making sense. And then my mom suggested, well, you should look at Changing Hands up the street, which is a you know, iconic local indie bookstore here in Phoenix. Um and so I got a job there and that's, that was when everything started, you know, to click. That's when everything started to make a little bit more, <clears throat> excuse me, a little bit more sense. Um, I loved my time there and I loved being with people who want to talk about books. And I loved being with, um, 
books themselves. You know, it's, I'm a creative person and, and I need that creative outlet. I need stories. I need that in my life, but having come back from New York, having, you know, failed so publicly being in the bookstore allowed me to privately go back into that world and privately start to dream again. So I started writing stories at night in my bedroom and, you know, I, I would, when I would shelve a book at the store by an author with my last name, Newman, I would take my thumb and I would like cover their first name on the spine of the book because oh. I shelved it. And I would pretend that it was my own book that I was shelving. But it, you know, it gave me a way to, to dream again, but in private without it being a public thing. It was, I could write stories and if they were bad stories, which they were, you know, nobody knew. Nobody saw the terrible pages that I was writing, but I could still be creative and I could still do it and I could still dream. And it was there at that time that my dream of being a published writer really became a concrete goal. And it didn't happen instantly. I left the bookstore and I, you know, I went to, to be a flight attendant because my, my mom's a flight attendant. My sister's a flight attendant. We call it the family business. And when the opportunity came <laughs> up, I really, I just knew that I had to take it. Um, and I'm so glad I did because that's where I had the idea for falling. And then it was just like, boom, all the, you know, the dominoes started to fall and everything just started to make sense. And, and so, yeah, my time at the bookstore was pivotal to my journey and, and how I wound up being here. And it's, it's, it's so cool too. Cause like when, when falling came out, my, my first event for my first book was at changing hands was with my former coworkers. Oh, with, I love that. You know, in the place that I dreamed of, you know, being and, and, and having the success. And it was, and it's the same thing with this book. It's again, the first, uh, first event is going to be at the store. And I just, I can't wait. I love that sense of it all coming full circle. And I also, I appreciate you sharing that about feeling like you'd failed in pursuing a stage career. Because, you know, I think that's an important message to people out there is those moments in our lives that we perceive as failure might just be the bump that changes our trajectory and right. sends us hurtling toward the place we're supposed to be, which I think, I think has happened with you. I mean, if you'd found success there, who knows if you would have found your way into this. And this is obviously what you were born to do. So it's, uh, it sounds like it was actually a lucky break after all that, that you found your way here. So, you know, I wanted to ask you, just like with falling, I think I will have drowning in the back of my mind every time I fly. Um, so you put it on such solid ground from a research <laughs> perspective that we can really imagine it happening. I mean, this wasn't just a, oh, all these crazy things would have to align for this to happen. Like it made sense that it could happen. And that is just as the reader. So has writing these two books changed the way you fly? I mean, I know you've spent much more time in the air than the majority of people, but are there things you know now or possibilities that you've had to think through that have affected your own experience in the air? That's an interesting question. You know, the way that it's changed how I fly is that now when I'm on a plane, I'm looking for ideas because I used to be on a plane every day, you know, and yeah. now it's, it's far more rare since I'm not flying anymore. So I'm, I'm sitting there just looking, I'm not reading, I'm not watching a movie. I'm not listening to music. 
I'm watching, I'm observing and I'm thinking, okay, what else can I make go wrong on this plane? So that's, (laughs) that's also, I have to say, that's not so different from how I always thought, which is a good thing. You want your pilots and your flight attendants always thinking what can go wrong and what am I going to do about it if it does? It's how we're trained to think. It's how we're trained to react. Because if you've done that dress rehearsal, if you know what you're going to do, what your course of action is, if something goes wrong, yes, then you are doing nothing but setting yourself up for success. So the way my brain thinks is really from the way I've been conditioned and trained to think as as a flight attendant. And I have to say, it's been really, it's been really fun to, to have some responses. Like I had someone write who said, you know, that they had just finished reading drowning and they were on a plane and the person sitting next to them had their laptop out during takeoff and landing. Like they never stowed their large portable electronic device. They had it out the whole time. And she was like, I was so nervous. Cause in my head the whole time, I was just thinking that's a projectile. If something goes wrong, I know that that large electronic device is going flying and it's going to hurt someone. It's going to do it, you know? And I was like, there you go. Exactly. Bring in the awareness. So I'm still safety forward, a safety forward professional trying to get that message out there. (laughs) TJ Newman saving lives. I like it. (laughs) Well, I, I have to say that somebody that's brave enough to read this on a plane Kudos to them. Yeah, that is true. That is true. (laughs) You know, I also wanted to mention, TJ, that we're also going to be speaking this month with Anne Hood, who, like you, was a flight attendant who did some of her initial writing on cocktail napkins while in the air, you know, some of her initial dreaming in the air. And in her memoir, Fly Girl, she talks about how that period of her life shaped her to be a writer, which you talked a little bit about that, too, especially in terms of having to uh, assess your passengers and, and evaluate your passengers. But how else do you think your background as a flight attendant helped not just shape your writing, but shaped your ability to handle some of the incredible curveballs that have come your way with your success now? Mm, that's a great question. I think, look, as a flight attendant, every day you've got a different set of circumstances. And it is... I've always thought that my brain naturally made up stories in that environment because what are stories, right? They're, they're conflict, right? Stories are, are conflict. What is the conflict here? And then that's what the story is. I don't think I ever worked a flight in which there was not conflict and it may be small and it may be big, but something's going to happen. If it's a interpersonal relationship conflict between the crew, if it's, you know, a passenger, you know, having a medical emergency, whatever it is, there's conflict. And so I think that, that, that being in that constantly, that environment just makes you see stories. It makes you see everything around you in a different, a different way. And I think, you know, it just translates into big stories. I think that's also why there are so many aviation stories, movies and books and and everything. And it's, it's, it's an evergreen, you know, environment because you can have an action thriller set on a plane. You can have a romance set on a plane. You can have a murder mystery set on a plane. You can, you know, talk to, to the twilight zone. You know, every time I look out on the wing, I still see that guy dancing on the wing, you know, (laughs) limit to the kind of stories that you can put on a plane because all it is, is humans interacting in a contained environment. 
and that is ripe for anything and everything. So I think being in that has just, you know, made, made it so that, you know, no matter what the challenge is that pops up, you don't have a choice. That's the other thing that I think about flying is so interesting and, and has helped me so much in, in what I'm doing and the challenges I face is like, it's like being strapped into a roller coaster. Even if you wanted to get off, you can't. Once you're up in that plane, you can't get out of there. So no matter what it is, you don't have the option of leaving the office. You don't have the option of not facing it. It's not an option. There's nowhere to run. So every single day, no matter what you're coming up against, you are forced to confront it. There's no other option. And I think that that sort of mindset carries over into stories, into resilience, into just life in general. Absolutely. Wow. So I know that our listeners, and of course I include us with that, they're going to want to know what you have next for us. You've certainly proven that you can make us hold our breath, make our hearts race, and make us sob. What can you share about what's coming next? I am working on my third book, and it is, (laughs) it is, I'm excited about it. It's, it's big. It's pretty, it's pretty big. I'm I'm not gonna, I, you know, I did the same thing. So when I wrote falling, no one knew, like literally no one knew. I only told my family I was writing a book, like almost at the end of when I had a first draft. Like I just, I, you know, when the book came out, when it was like, I announced that I had, you know, this two book deal and it was this huge thing and it was very exciting all of my friends and family were writing me being like, Oh my God, we're so proud of you. This is so exciting. You wrote a book. Like <laughs> yeah. Nobody knew I was, was doing that, which is the way I liked it. Cause again, I was, you know, coming off a of failure and it was scary to put myself out there. And, and I'm, I'd never published a book before and I don't have a degree in English and you know, all the things that we tell ourselves as to why we shouldn't be, doing what we're doing, you know, that, that doubt, that, that imposter syndrome, you know, it was real. So I, I, I fought that by just keeping it to myself. Um, and needless to say that when I was writing drowning, that, uh, set of circumstances was, uh, not replicable. (laughs) A few people knew I was writing something now and, and, you know, the, the pressure was there. And the only way that I could really kind of deal with the pressure of that was again, by keeping it as close as I could, there was a really long yeah. time that my family had no clue what the book was about. Literally, when I went and got scuba certified, that was like their first clue. When I was <laughs> like, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm going, I'm getting scuba certified. They were like, really? So let's talk about ditching, huh? So it's like I, I again kept that, you know, very close to the chest. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do that again with my third because it just, it allows me to to take big swings and fail if it's, if it's just me that knows about it. That is so well put. And you, it's enough to know that you have a third book. Yes. We're excited. That's great. Well, before we let you go today, can you tell us where readers can learn more about you, about your tour and about all things TJ Newman? Absolutely. I have a website which has all the details and that is tjnewmanauthor.com. That's where all the details for everything, how to find me on socials, how to find me on tour. I'm doing a 12, 12 city tour coming up with this book starting on the 29th. And I hope people come out and I hope they'll find me on socials and yeah, that's the place to go. Wonderful. 
That's awesome. Well, hopefully, maybe you and I will cross paths somewhere on the road. That would be so much fun. We'll have to do that deliberately one of these days rather than leaving it to chance. <laughs> 100%. And it's just, I, I'm so grateful for, you know, Savannah Book Festival, which was where we met. And and it's just, I'm still so grateful. That was my first like being out in the world. Cause you know, when, when, when we published, cause we shared a book birthday, my first book we and, did. and Vanishing Stars, you know, we, we shared a book birthday in 2021 and that was COVID times. Yeah. And so it was like, we weren't doing anything in person or anything like that. So when we went to the Savannah book festival, that was my first time, you know, being out in the world, you know, as a, as a writer and with other writers. And I was so nervous and so scared. And I remember being, you know, at that first mixer, you know, the opening night and you just walked right up to me and were just like, <laughs> hi. And immediately we're just like, I'm going to be your friend. And I was like, I have a friend. Oh my God. And it was, it was, I can't tell you, you and meeting all the girls, you know, friends and fiction, it's just, it's, it's your warm, welcoming way that you embrace everybody that you, you, you know, encounter in the publishing landscape. I'm, I'm one of those people and I'm so grateful for the way that you guys have just been so generous and embracing. So thank you for that. You guys were some of my first like book friends. (laughs) What a nice thing to say. Well, we are so happy to count you as part of our family. We love you. We all, we all adore you and we are happy, just so happy about all your success and happy that you seem to really be enjoying as you should this tremendous, fabulous ride. So it has been wonderful talking with you today, TJ. It was such a pleasure. We're so glad you joined us. Absolutely. Yeah, we really appreciate you being here. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me and for asking such great questions. I feel like I learned a lot this call. So thank you for (laughs) asking me questions. (laughs) And thank you to everyone who tuned in. If you like a book that will take your breath away and is absolutely unputdownable, go grab a copy of Drowning from our Friends in Fiction bookshop.org page. Help Indies save a little money. Thanks again for listening this week and every week. If you're enjoying the podcast, please be sure and tell a friend to tune in. We'll see you next time. Thank you for tuning in to the Friends in Fiction Writer's Block Podcast. Please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review on your favorite podcast platform. Tune in every Friday for another episode. And you can also join us every week on Facebook or YouTube, where our live Friends and Fiction show airs at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. We are so glad you're here.